Grow Microbiology, a podcast dedicated to the sharing of ideas, best practices, teaching tips, educational solutions, and other exciting topics in microbiology. I'm Valerie Kramer, a member of the McGraw-Hill product team, and I'm very excited to introduce today the amazing and hilarious Barry Chess, who has a heart for microbiology. His students and some very special microbes, which we're going to mention a little bit later in the episode. So, Barry, it's so wonderful to have you here on the show. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me, Valerie. It's great to be here. I, you know, I'll try to be as amazing and hilarious as possible. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we'll hit that bar. It's great. Well, Barry's coming to us live from Pasadena, where he has taught for more than 20 years. And this is your first podcast appearance, right, Barry? It is my first podcast appearance, but I've been talking for quite a while, so we should be good. <laughs> That's great. Well, I know we've even talked about a podcast, and you've talked about it years ago. When and so I'm I'm glad we're finally doing this, and uh, everybody can get a glimpse of of some of your expertise here. <laughs> so you'll all realize in just a few moments the amazing sense of humor that Barry has, and one of my favorite things about him is that he makes microbiology fun and really relates it to real life because it is real life. So. Before we get more into that and how you use those concepts, Barry, in your lab manual, can you share a little bit more about yourself, including the path of where you got to where you are today and why you have a passion for microbiology? Uh, absolutely. So uh, where I got to today, I mean, I always loved science um, of every type, what, you know, what makes things tick. Uh, and originally, you know, when I was in college, I wanted to be a doctor because that's what's, you know, that's what you understand when you're 17 years old. You don't understand molecular epidemiology, but you understand what a doctor does. Uh, and then, you know, over time, realized that what I really liked was not entire people, but just bits and pieces. You know, so much more fun to study a microbe or something like that. Uh, and then, on top of that, I guess I have, you know, a knack for boring people with my stories uh, and just like to tell stories and thought, okay, well, I can do that, um, which people love. You know, people love viral videos, you know, somebody slipping on the ice or, you know, sliding down a kid's slide and the whole slide collapses. And a million people watch these things. You know, I and I do the same thing, but the things I like are, hey, here's when a whole wedding got sick. And that just, for reasons that are probably not good, really interests me. So that's kind of where I got there. That's great. Well, I think as microbiologists, we would agree with you that those kind of crazy, scary events can be looked at in actually a positive way because they're very interesting. Uh, maybe other people in the world, not so much. <laughs> yeah, not not so much. And I mean, not really funny. We, you know, I I always talk about things as being funny. Um, but the only way we learn about things is when things go wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, when a plane crashes, they send 500 people out to study, you know, a piece of the wing and the wheel and why this happened and why that happened. But nobody ever studies the planes that land perfectly safely. You know, they never run on there and find out. Well, at what point did you run out of pretzels? Um, you know, so that's, that's how you learn about things. And we, you know, especially nowadays, the 21st century is a great time to be alive. Uh, we don't see people dying of, of simple diseases left and right. Uh, you know, nobody knows anyone who's died of tuberculosis or botulism or anthrax. And these used to be extraordinarily common things. I mean, so much so that people had large families because, you know, it was kind of expected that not everybody would make it to adulthood. 
Uh, and now we don't even think about that. We have clean water, we have clean food, we have antibiotics, and it becomes, you know, a huge news story when, you know, a hundred people get sick eating at, you know, a Mexican restaurant or a chain of Mexican restaurants. That used to happen every single day. I, you know, so we've become complacent about it in some cases, but it makes for a fascinating story. Very interesting. Yeah, all we have to do is open our eyes to see that microbiology is just everywhere. And yeah. you've developed and written a lab manual actually based around case studies, and it's called Laboratory Applications in Microbiology, a case study, case study approach, and it's out in fourth edition this January. So pretty cool. It's actually a really cool lab manual, something that's totally different um, out there in the market. So how did you get even the idea, how did this idea arise to create something like this, a lab manual surrounded around case studies? Well, the idea, I guess, came about because a lot, of, um, a lot of lab manuals are the same. In fact, they're all, at heart, very similar. It's like comparing one cookbook with another cookbook. Uh, there's only so many different ways you can make chicken soup. But the idea about when chicken soup would be appropriate, you know, it's not a good dessert. And unless people really know that, and we know that, you know, we kind of know when, when certain foods are a good choice and when they're not. And the same thing being in the laboratory, when is this particular test good? When is a gram stain good? And when do you need to do a spore stain? So the idea of let's link all this with real life and get a little more uh, perspective about how things really happen in, in the real world um, was kind of a first in lab manuals. And I think people like it. You know, it seems the people that I know, my students tend to tend to read the case studies and enjoy them. And if you enjoy something, you're much more likely to study it and learn it. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's kind of where it came from. Yeah, and we're always talking about relevancy. So it definitely seems like a no-brainer. So how do you otherwise use case studies in your classroom other than in the, in the lab? Do you have any tips as to the best ways to incorporate them in the microbiology course for maybe others who, who haven't thought of this or who do it small or maybe just read a news article? But is there anything more that, that you might share about that? Yeah. I, you know, so, I mean, everyone, there's nobody who's ever taught anything that has never said, hey, here's a really cool thing I read in the newspaper or heard on uh, on the radio this morning or came across my social media feed, and we're going to talk about it for a couple of minutes. Uh, but, and this is, again, one of the words that has become really big in education is scaffolding, which sounds really cool, but all it means is that you start small and build your way up. You know, you have to walk before you run. You have to learn the alphabet before you get to read Shakespeare, things like that. Um, Every exercise we have has been scaffolded. Every, every exercise begins with, this is why we're doing this one thing, and then we build on it and build on it and build on it, and we start with easy, simple questions, uh, you know, some multiple choice and some definitions, and that's going to, the reason for those is that they draw you into the next part of the exercise, how we're going to do something, how we're going to stain a bacteria, and then as we come out the other end, you understand how, and you understand why, and then we look at a case study and say, okay, well, let's figure out how we can actually apply this to the world. Um, you know, how do we go about testing milk to know that it's good or bad? How do we know? Because clearly the microbes are already in your milk because they go bad anyway. 
So it's a matter of number. And so being able to count the number of microbes really does have a place in, is my milk still good to drink? So everything we do and everything that's been shown in case studies uh, is that they boost learning, they help you to think critically about the outside world, uh, and in terms of students, they increase retention and success, which are the two things that every, every teacher in the United States is being hit with lately is, well, how well are you keeping your students engaged and how well are you getting them through to the end? So that's, that's the deal. Yeah, and there's really great evidence and even statistics on this way of learning. Isn't that correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's, there's study after study after study, but one of the best studies from several years ago about case studies, they said they uh, looked at a bunch of professors who used it, a bunch of students who used it. They found out that 97% of instructors reported that their students who were taught with cases learned to think about an issue in new ways. Um, Ninety-five percent took a more active part in the learning process. So we all know, you know, active learning is just the way to go. It's just, it's absolutely what works. Uh, and ninety-two percent were more engaged, which is, you know, if you find something funny and interesting, yes, you're going to be more engaged. Mm-hmm. Great numbers yeah. and really, really cool stuff. So, do you have any specific experiences or student feedback? that you can share maybe a student testimonial or something where a light bulb turned on for them or experienced something like one of the case studies? Oh, I, I have dozens and dozens and dozens, mm -hmm. which would just bore everyone to tears. Uh, but I have one that I always thought was cool. So typically the end, the end project in any microbiology course is identifying unknowns. Um, Everyone's given a bacterial unknown, and you get to put together all your skills that you've learned throughout the semester to try to identify it. And I try to get my students to have kind of an organic feel about their unknowns, that there's, there's more to them than just a set of data. You know, if we're talking about a person, we say, well, a person is five foot three, 110 pounds, has blonde hair, blue eyes, et cetera. Um, that's a list of data. But it's not, you know, we can certainly recognize our sister from our cousin because they're more than just this data. So what I tell my students, and I know I'm, I'm rambling on, which my students would tell you I also do, mm -hmm. uh, but I tell my students that, you know, if we came up with a way to describe a dog, for instance, and we said, well, it's got short hair, and it's 50 pounds, and four legs, and a muzzle, et cetera, if a three-legged dog walked into the room, nobody would ever look at it and go, oh, my God, what's that strange and magnificent animal that just wandered in? You know, we would all understand that it's a dog that doesn't quite fit our definition. And so we have this, whatever you want to call it, organic or holistic way of dealing with it. So with all that background, um, I had a student who was volunteering in a hospital, and this was during unknowns, and she said that one of the rooms in which she was volunteering had a very distinct smell. And she asked the doctor uh, what kind of infection they were dealing with in that room, and the doctor told her. And she said, that smelled exactly like my unknown. And she was able to come back and use it. And that is in no book anywhere, how different bacteria smell. 
Mm-hmm. But she was able to do it, and it helped her. And so that's that's one of those moments where we go, wow, you've moved beyond this. You've you've moved to like a whole new level. And that's that was one of my favorite uh, moments. Oh, that makes you feel good too as an instructor. Yes, and that's quite a, a impressive way of thinking. And I know you've done some research yourself on just innovative methods of teaching that lead to success, and case studies are one of those. Uh, aside from that, uh, this, uh, the case studies, and you've done a lot of other things, including founding a biotechnology program at Pasadena City College, reviewed case studies for the National Center for Case Study Teaching. These are all long uh, titles here. And that contributor <laughs> to the book, Science Story You Can Count On. You're also an author for McGraw-Hill for uh, Foundations in Microbiology, which is currently in its 10th edition. I know you're working on the 11th edition now. How have you used your experiences and research and all of these things that you've done so far into writing your textbooks? Um, yeah, so, yes, everything in science has long names. You know, scientists, mm-hmm. you put scientists and teachers together, and it's no good to name something with one word if, like, seven words will do. It's like you get extra points. Um, so, yeah, I've done all that. I've also been working on foundations, uh, working on the 11th edition. It's on my computer right at this very moment. Um, and the writing of textbooks is interesting because there's a bunch of things that you're trying to do. There's a, a number of different goals. And obviously teaching somebody is one of the goals. But you have to realize who it is that you're teaching. You have to write to their level. You have to realize that every word and every photograph has to have a purpose. Um, pages are expensive, or one of the things that you learn in writing textbooks, that if you add a page here and a page there and a page there, a 900-page textbook is now an 1,100-page textbook. And mm-hmm. we don't want to do that. It costs more. It takes more time. Uh, people's backs are going to hurt from carrying this monstrosity around. <laughs> so when we look at each word, we say, well, what am I doing with that word in that photograph? Uh, and when you when you really look with a critical eye, you go, okay, this is how I can get this person to the overall goal and get my student to understand a particular concept. And that's if you manage to do that, then you get to the home happy at the end of the day. That's great. And those students are very lucky, and we're very lucky to have you on the team. In general, overall, what is your favorite thing about teaching? We know you love microbiology, obviously, <laughs> which is so awesome. And how do you envision, how do, what do you love now, and then how do you envision the future of teaching microbiology? Will it change technology-wise, or, or do you feel it might stay the same with just uh, some different tips added? Well, in terms of teaching, um, the thing I love is that it's always a new beginning. Every, you know, we started class a couple of weeks ago, and it's a whole new group of people. Uh, And I get to work with them, and I get to kind of help them and point them in the right direction, and not everyone is going to be great, but hopefully they're going to be better. And if they can be better at the end of the day, and I had something to do with it, that's unbelievably awesome. And that's, like I said, the thing that makes you go home happy at the end of the day. in terms of the future of teaching microbiology, well, there's a few things um, there. The number one thing is digital. 
because this is something, when I started teaching, it was a blackboard and a piece of chalk. Uh, and nowadays, that's just not there. The, the building I teach in now does not have a single blackboard in it. So looking at digital stuff, we can, and I use you know the McGraw-Hill Connect product, uh, I put questions out for my students to go through beforehand. And based on how they answer these questions, I can come in and lecture much more efficiently because I can see how they did it. And I can walk into class and say, okay, well, you guys clearly don't know anything about translation. So guess who's going to spend 10 minutes talking about translation of messenger RNA? Uh, and I don't have to come in and say, well, everybody did perfect on the structure of a ribosome. I don't need to talk about that at all. So you become far more efficient with your time and, more importantly, with the time of your students. So how long have you been using that technology? Uh, for, God, you know, pin me down to years here. Um, mm -hmm. Four years in various forms, and before that, I've tried to use it in other ways. Uh, you know, I've had going back to 20 years ago, I used to have little paper prequises that people had to do in the hallway before they could come into the room. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, you know, I was like the gatekeeper. Uh, but it's just so much better because now people can do it on their phone. I mean, one of the best things I ever saw was I went over. Uh, across the street to grab a cup of coffee. And as I went into this uh, coffee shop across the street, there were five of my students and they were all gathered around one laptop and they were working on something together. They were working on something. They were working on the assignment for my class uh, because class was going to start in 20 minutes. And I thought, this is unbelievable that I've got you know four or five students and they're all working together. They all know each other. They're all helping each other. Uh, and it all centered around this, uh, you know, their their reactions to this assignment that they were going to turn in, and it was going to help guide what I was going to teach them in, in half an hour. So it, it just, everything came together. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. That sounds like I would want to join your class. I like that. Uh, oh, don't speak too quickly. <laughs> okay, so switching gears just a little bit. If uh, out there, if you've been listening to this podcast, we added a fun little segment um, that asks, what is your favorite microbe and why? Now, when I decided to do this, my thoughts immediately went to Barry, who has a really fun response about uh, his favorite band and his favorite microbes and how they work together. So well, Barry, I do, in fact. Well, but here's the thing. I actually have two favorite microbes. And okay. one of them, I'll tell you the other one in a second, but the first one is one called Rickettsia rickettsii, uh, which is a little half bacteria, half virus almost, um, that, cre that causes Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And so the reason I, that I really love it is, first of all, it's Rickettsia Rickettsia. They named it twice, which you have to love. And then secondly, Rocky Mountain spotted fever is a great name for a disease, except that it's not found in the Rocky Mountains. It's found, 95% of cases are found in Virginia and Kentucky and the eastern portion of the United States. So I love things that are just wildly off base like that. So that's one. <laughs> um, my second one, the one and the one you're talking about, is there is if you take 
uh, a termite and squish it and pop it open, what you find inside is a protozoan called a trichonymph. And the trichonymph is how termites are able to digest wood. They contain the enzymes that allow termites to digest wood. And so somebody recently found three new species of trichonymph living in termites that had these long flagella, so it looked as though they had, had long hair. And they kind of rhythm, rhythmically swayed back and forth with their long hair. And the person who discovered them named them after one of my favorite bands, which is Rush. And so he named them. The people in Rush are Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart. And so he names these three new microbes, Pseudotrichonympha lei, Pseudotrichonympha lifesoni, and Pseudotrichonympha perte, after the three numbers of Rush. And that, I think, has got to be better than, you know, than the Rock and, Roll, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or anything else. Just have your own microbe named after you. Absolutely. How cool that there are. That's even now yeah, I know. That's, so that's just cool. Well, rethinking this, I kind of think we should have had a full episode on these microbes. So maybe stay tuned in the future for one just, just on that. Fun See if they go on microbe. tour. <laughs> yes. Go on tour. I love it. Well, Barry, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your wisdom. Uh, before we go, if there's one final thing you'd like to leave us with, what would that be? Oh, I guess the biggest thing I try to get across to my students is everyone comes in, they worry about everything around them, you know, that we touch, you know, shopping carts, and we have, so we have to wipe them down, and we, we clean everything to within an inch of its life. But the biggest source of microbes anywhere around you is you. We are, we are absolutely covered. And the fact that even though we're covered with all these things and we live longer and are healthier than we've ever been means they can't be all bad. Right. So. Good. So there's good microbes out there, which we all know that. Well, you are a great inspiration, Barry, and thank you again. And best wishes to all the instructors out there. And thank you for oh, listening. Oh, thank you. Yes, it was great to have you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Microbiology. If you liked this episode, please share with your friends and like us or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes for more microbiology tips and inspiration.